Hey, financially savvy travelers, have you considered teaching abroad? While we've spoken about teaching English in China back in episode number three, in this episode, I want to explore taking your teaching career outside of the U.S. or the region where you're from. Meet assistant principal Adrian M. Waller who is currently based in the Cayman Islands. Adrian has been in education for over 15 years, doing diversity, equity, and inclusion advocacy, parent involvement work, teaching and leadership, serving in public, private, and charter schools in the U.S., Qatar, China, and Kuwait. In this episode, you're going to be learning about the different types of occupations eligible for teaching abroad. And let me tell you, I learned it's more than just teachers. Also, the differences between a private school versus an international school, common teaching abroad myths, as well as the financial implications, or I should say benefits and incentives, and so much more. My hope is that after listening to this episode, if you are in the teaching space, you'll have more options because there are just so many ways to live and work and have a travel-filled, adventurous life. Am I right? I know I'm right. Okay, now before we jump into this conversation with Adrian, I want to introduce you to Travel and Shit by DeCarey. Now, I told DeCary that I don't typically curse on the podcast, but DeCary's podcast is called Travel and Shit. All right. So, travel conversations don't have to just be about the destination. Every Thursday, DeCary and the occasional guests have nuanced conversations about the intersection of travel and basic life ish because travel is more than a vacation. You can expect topics like digital surveillance abroad, higher decision-making style affects your travel, folklore and the diaspora, destination reviews, and travel growth strategies. You'll be hearing from people like air traffic controllers and marine biologists, expats, and other unique personalities at this intersection of life and travel. And I definitely encourage you to check out my episode where I was a featured guest, on episode 90, where we talked about saving and budgeting for travel. But honestly, you can binge over 200 episodes of nuanced travel conversation every Thursday with Takeri wherever you listen to podcasts. Again, that's Travel and Shit. And I'll make sure you have the link in the show notes to go ahead and follow. Welcome to The Thought Card, a podcast about travel and money, where planning, saving, and creativity leads to affording travel, building wealth, and paying off debt. We are the Financially Savvy Travelers. What types of occupations are available to relocate abroad? Does it have to be only a teacher or are there other occupations as well in the mix? So the way I like to typically describe this to people is like, take a school, pick it up and put it in another country. And what are the jobs that you would have there? Now, there are a couple that generally 
they're not going to hire somebody from a different country from. Receptionists typically are local hires. Teaching assistants are typically local hires. And depending, and this one's kind of back and forth, sometimes HR are local hires. Often, though, any director level job, so director of facilities, and sometimes that's local hire, but director level is not always local. So that would include director of facilities, IT director, HR director, finance director. Often those are actually jobs that are brought in from abroad. So there's those. Then there's all the ones that are like education, but not exactly. So like you were talking about counselors, and then there's college and career counselors. There's actual social emotional counselors. So there's all of that. But then you have all these other jobs like principal, assistant principal, deans, curriculum coordinators, team leads. But basically any job that you're like, oh, I did this at a school, marketing, all of those, any job that kind of exists to make a school run, a big one is the advancement department, which includes admissions, Sometimes marketing and all of those different things are within a school. They may do social media for that one as well. All the different aspects of school and that makes the school function and run and successful. That's available basically anywhere in the world. The same is true for higher education as well. That's not my expertise or anything, but you're going to find deans of school, presidents of universities, from startup to flourishing satellite campuses of like Georgetown and things like that. So anything you can think of, if it exists where you are, it likely exists where you want to go. And that is exactly how I wanted to start off the episode, because I do feel like there's like these misconceptions that the only teaching opportunities are teaching English. And I love that you mentioned just pick up any school, put it abroad, and there's a position potentially out there waiting for you. So rewinding it back with all this knowledge now that you have, take us back to like the very beginning How did you get into the teaching space and what sparked this teaching abroad opportunity and that initial push to explore this as an option for you? So I always tell people I always wanted to be a teacher, but it took not being a teacher to be a teacher. (laughs) Like, you know, that is kind of like this backwards journey of like, I want to be a teacher and people telling me I was too smart to be a teacher. So I was like, oh, I'm going to look into like the medical field because I believe that there are two things you need in life. You need your health, you need your education and you can do everything else in the world with those. But if one of them is really out of whack, your whole life is going to suffer. So for a long time, it was like, oh, medical, and I'm going to be a children's hospital CEO. Yeah, no. By the time I was graduating college, I was like, "Mm, I don't know about this. So I did AmeriCorps and then eventually did Chicago Teaching Fellows, which is an alternative certification program, which if you do have an alternative teaching certificate, you can still go abroad. So there are listeners who, if they're in education, may know what I'm talking about. That's still open to you. I went through an alt-cert program the person I share office with through an alt-cert program, one of my closest friends went through an alt-cert program, all of that is possible. So eventually was teaching in Chicago. Then I moved back home after I lost my dad to kind of just be closer to family, my mom, which is outside of Detroit. And then I was at a dinner and people were talking about teachers teaching in other countries. I was like, wait, what? You can go teach in a different country. I'm in my early thirties. I was in my ninth year teaching when that happened. I'm like, 
wait, so this whole time I've been stuck in the United States of America for no reason? Like, why did I not know this? They're like, oh, yeah, it is great. And you can do all of these things. And it's amazing. And so I was like, well, what did you use? She told me the site that she used. And so then the guy was dating. I was like, yeah, so I'm thinking about this. He's like, oh, that sounds pretty cool. And they started sending me posts. And I was like, oh, these salaries are some salaries that like, I'm here for this. Like, this is great. And then next thing you know, I started applying. I just started telling people, oh, yeah, I'm going to the Middle East. I had no job. I was just like, this is what I'm doing. And then a school in Qatar reached out to me. I'd never heard of Qatar. I was like, oh, is that part of like the UAE? I went and Googled. I was like, ooh, you're an idiot. It's its own country. <laughs> and then next thing you know, I said yes. And I was headed off to Qatar with no exact plan. Just like, let's see how this works. I was kind of burnt out by U.S. education and by the micromanagement that was happening by like I was part of the Chicago teacher strike. And that kind of left me a little disillusioned with not the world, but America's view on teachers. And I just, there was so much, I was just tired. And I was like, maybe this isn't the profession for me. And I was like, well, let me go abroad. And if that doesn't work, then yeah, it wasn't the job for me. And it actually renewed my love for education, allowed me to see a lot of my value and what else I offer. And so like, I went abroad as a teacher and now I'm an assistant principal. And it wasn't that long ago when that happened. So like quickly through this journey, I was able to really, escalate and explore new options and possibilities. Excellent. Excellent. So what are the differences you would say between teaching in the U.S. versus generally teaching abroad? I know you taught at Qatar, you taught in China, in Kuwait, in the Grand Cayman Islands as well. If you had to sum it up, like what are the main differences that you feel like people should know about? Well, so I taught in public school for seven years in Chicago and then two years in a charter school in Detroit. And in both situations, I felt like one of the biggest differences I noticed in the international school was just access to resources. And whether that's the resources that the school provides or the resources that the families who are going to the school provide, there was just a real big difference in like in the U.S., I was expected that I'm going to spend all this money out of pocket on things. That was never an expectation being abroad. That's one. And it's a big one because I feel like that just stuck with you. The second would be time. And so in the U.S., I felt like I never had enough time. Now, mind you, as a teacher, you're probably going to always kind of feel that way. But I felt that way getting to work early, leaving work late, and taking work home and doing things on the weekend. In the classroom... For the most part, if I'm working outside of the like work hours, it's rare. It's like much more rare internationally. It's not impossible. I'm not saying it never happens, but like that weekly grind was a very big difference. The next one would be around testing. And so like the U.S. is really big on testing and those tests are also to hold students accountable, but often to put into question your teaching practice. And they're not used in the way most of them are designed to be like formative assessment, helping you figure out what's working, what's not working and make adjustments. No, those things are to say, yes, you're a, a good teacher. No, you're not. And now we're gonna tie your certificate to these things in some states, your ability to get a raise to this or your ability to even just like have a decent review. And that's a super unhealthy practice that is not really one in international schools. I mean, you'll be at international schools and principals won't even come and observe your lessons. And so like, that's a complete 
difference in the U.S. where people, it's like a revolving door of people coming in and making observations. I could go on and on. But the last big one that I'll talk about is when you're working at an international school, you're often learning things so different than what you would have done, like where you're from. So I'm from the United States. The three leadership members of just my elementary school leadership team, one's from the U.S., one's from the U.K., one's from Canada. And then within that, they've all worked in different places. One worked in the Philippines in Amsterdam. One worked in Mexico and India. And I worked in Qatar, China, and Kuwait. So just imagine the wealth of conversation that's happening from having lived, been educated, and then worked in all these different places. There's an element of constant learning that you're doing from just other ways people and countries do things because education systems, as much as there's a lot of similarities, there are quite a few differences as well. And so those would be some of the big ones that I think that like were what made me go, yes, this is something I want to explore and get into. You mentioned quite a few times this term called international schools. So what is an international school and what types of institutions are willing to hire these different types of teaching occupations abroad? So that's a really good question because there are private schools that are in other countries, which is slightly different. And then you also generally have local schools, all of which local schools, private schools abroad and international schools will likely hire people with foreign passports, for lack of a better way to say it. An international school, there's a few things that typically make them different than like a private school that hires international teachers. And when you're going to look for jobs as somebody who wants to go abroad, both are going to be available to you. Key differences, international schools frequently have ties to like an embassy of some sort. Not all, but a lot do. They also normally have some recognition by some national board or international board. What do I mean by that? My school is accredited by Middle States Association. This is a, an association that's based in the United States, allows us to issue United States-based diplomas, diplomas that would be accepted in the United States, and holds us to a level of a standard that may be different than a private school without that. Now, some private schools will go through accreditation as well. International schools tend to have a higher international population. So if you start looking at the numbers, private schools that are abroad will maybe have 50% local and then 50% something else. International schools will have anywhere from 75 to 90% of their population that are not local. And so you're going to have a high diversity. Likely when you go to their website, they're going to boast about the number of different passports of both staff as well as students. And you can see anywhere from a high number would be like 40 different passports of staff and then 120 different nationalities represented. Those are high numbers. But even getting into something where you're talking about 20 different nationalities of staff and even like 60 or more nationalities of students is something that's not rare in an international school. They tend to have curriculums that are also international. So we use Common Core Standards, which are U.S.-based. Some others will use IB, International Baccalaureate. And others will use, there's like an international curriculum and things like that. But ones that are pretty well-vetted, well-accepted standards and curriculums. 
And then the last one is international schools versus private schools. This is probably one of the biggest ones and different from like local government, public or whatever you want to call them schools. An international school tends to not have to follow necessarily the exact rules and regulations of the country in terms of education. So like in Cayman, there are actually different governing bodies for the public schools and non-public schools. And so at times, like, so when I was in China, our school had a calendar that reflected the Chinese school calendar because it was a private school where my friend who worked at the international school had a calendar that was more comparative with like an American school calendar. So things like that. So those are some of the differences. Calendars will be ones. What you're expected to do will be slightly different because they may not hold you to the same standards because you're typically being held to standards of that governing body that I told you about. MSA, NIAS, WASC, IB, and Cambridge. Those are generally the big five that if I were looking for a school, I will not work at a school ever again that's not accredited by one of those agencies. Like that's really important to me. And likely I wouldn't even work for what Cambridge is kind of not a negative thing, but it's like a lower accreditation. I would probably more likely be looking at one of the three big ones in the United States, particularly because that allows me to more likely be able to easily reintegrate back into working in the United States, where often if you say you're going to go for two or three years, but you know you want to go back to the United States, you're more likely for your HR to accept that work as steps towards your pay if it's a school that has accreditation from a U.S. body. Very interesting. All of these nuances is like things that I think is important for solid foundation, especially for those who may be hearing about this for the first time and want to dive in. Like knowing these differences, I think is really important as a foundation. I don't know if you mentioned this, but I know before we hopped on the call, we were talking about myths and these things that for some reason we have in our minds that this is what teaching abroad looks like. So I absolutely want to talk about cost and safety and also open up the conversation to whatever other myths you feel like are quite common that you hear a lot about when it comes to teaching abroad. So when I first started saying like, I want to talk to people about what I do, this was like one of the first things that I kind of dived into. And I came up with like eight that I think are like the big ones, a lot of which you address, which are you're not going to be safe where you're going. And if you look up like data around safety and things like that, that's actually like a huge myth. Like I'm from outside of Detroit. And I say that because I love home. I love the city. I love everything about it. But when you talk about safety, if you think you're more safe in Detroit than most of the world, I'm sorry, you probably need to do a reset. And that goes for a lot of large American cities, not just Detroit. I would say New York, Chicago, L.A., Violence is very different in the United States. I remember I tell this like as kind of like a joke. The first date I went on when I lived in Qatar, the guy left the keys in the ignition of the car. And I was like, bruh, like the keys. He's like, yeah, nobody's taking this car. And he's like, I've dropped my wallet outside of Carrefour, which is a big grocery store. And people were walking over it. Like, he's like, it was so easy to find because people are avoiding it. Like, nobody was picking it up and like, thanks, bro, I got this. Like, the amount of safety I felt, like, there's a point, and I still think this is probably foolish, but there's a point where I wasn't even always locking my door, you know, just because that's how safe I felt in those countries. So that's a big one. 
Even you said your friend went to Dubai. I think everybody thinks China or Dubai. And it's like, I mean, those are great places. And I would even question if they're even the best places, you know, in terms of options. They are good places. And truth be told, China and Dubai do just have a large market of schools. And so in terms of being able to find a position, yeah, there probably are like a lot of people in specifically those two areas. But I'm in the Cayman Islands. I have a friend who's in Myanmar. I have somebody else who, a friend who was in Costa Rica. Like, you name it, you can go there. Like, I know somebody in Canada who's from the United States, so it is an international one. Like, you name a country. I knew people in the Netherlands. I knew people, or I know people in the Netherlands, like Spain, Portugal. And those are a little bit harder, but Japan, Korea, Vietnam, like, I can just go on. There's so many places, and depending on where you're going, you actually may be able to get better packages depending on the country. And so like, that's a big one is thinking that those are the only two places. Another one, the first thing people ask me are, how many languages do you speak? I say one, the best I can, you know, like, (laughs) and that's English. Like you don't need a second language. Do I think it's helpful? Yes. Have I tried to work to learn languages where I am? Yes. Do I understand mad Patois now that I never understood being from like Detroit? Yes. Like that's being here. Was I learning Chinese when I was there? Yes. Another one is like this idea that you're going to go and live in some little hut type of thing or extremely small place. Like, I live in a two-bedroom apartment where I am, and it's just me. My place in Kuwait was a two-bedroom as well. My place in China was a two-bedroom. The last one-bedroom I lived in was in Qatar, and that's the richest country in the world. And people would tell me, oh, you're living in a third-world country. I'm like, the richest country in the world is third world? Clearly, America's gotten bad information about what it is. It can be expensive, but it can also be dirt cheap. When I was in China, I lived off of $500 a month. Like if I spent a thousand dollars, I was like, like, you know, having a great old time. And I still have fun even living off of $500 a month. You can bring your pets. I know people who brought their pets with them and have done that. And that's not one I've done, but I know people who have taken their pets with them. I know people who do like Hawaii and Alaska because a lot of those are a soft way to kind of test if you want to go where you're still in the safety, if you need that, of knowing that like you haven't had to use your passport to go anywhere, or Puerto Rico, Guam, there's a few others like U.S. territories are a great way to have a cultural experience without really fully leaving like the air quote safety of the United States. So that's also something that people who are super nervous and no matter how much and how many numbers and statistics are still going to think that. And then the last one that I talk about is having a large savings. Part of why I went abroad is because I was tired of feeling like I was living paycheck to paycheck in the United States. So not only did I not have a large savings, I barely had a savings at all. Actually being abroad allowed me to get to having a savings, get me out of debt. It was that experience that really shifted how I looked at my life while still traveling, while still going out to brunches and doing all these different things. Like I was still able to live and have fun where in the United States, I was saving up my whole like year to go on one little trip with my mom, you know, and that was a big shift for me. You touched on so many different aspects from safety to languages, to pets, to locations and locales and the finances. So my show, The Thought Card, we intersect travel and money, two sides of the same coin. So from your perspective, 
what are some of the benefits that are available to educators who choose to work in international schools to work abroad, the financial benefits? So for example, I know that I have friends who were able to get their housing covered. I know in past conversations, you've mentioned taxes also. So would love to just dig into the financial aspects and like, what can that look like? I know every school is different. Every country is different, but like a a wide stroke, what would that look like? You'd say. So in non-Western countries, having housing pay for is an expected thing. I will say if you want to be like in like Europe and you want to be in a place that looks and seems more like the United States, if that's what you're looking for, you're likely not going to get housing. My housing is not included, but I have a salary that is competitive so that I can afford and find my own housing. But if you're in other places where you're not like in Western style countries, housing is typically given to you. And there's normally a couple of ways that happens. So the two key ways that that normally happens are there's housing actually that the school owns and provides you and you live in housing. Well, there's really three. Everybody in that building works for the school in some capacity. That's option one. And that's the one a lot of people know about. Option two is on the other end of the spectrum. Like here, this is how much money we have allocate for your housing, you go find whatever you want. So it's not as different, but it is different. But this money is just set aside for living. You go live off of this however you want. And then some have like an in-between where it's not something that per se the school owns, but they will pay for it for you. So I've lived in a couple of apartment buildings where the school has a contract with the building And they have sporadic rooms in there. So like so many rooms on this floor, so many rooms on that floor. So they don't own the building. They're not taking the risk of maintaining a building, but you're not taking the risk of investing and all of that either. And typically a lot of utilities will be included in that as well. Some places will include everything from electricity, water, and internet. Some don't include internet and some you even have to pay for like your electricity. Kind of, those are the things that vary, but In a competitive package, you're going to have internet, water, electricity. I was a terrible steward of the world when my electricity was paid for. (laughs) But those are options in terms of financially saving. And if you think about like, so a lot of times people will see their salary. They're like, oh, that's only $50,000. I make $70,000. Like, why would I take that job? It, It seems like a pay cut. Well, then once you account for, if you're going to a country that's not taxing you, Let's just say that's even 10%. So that's knocking $7,000 off of it. Let's say on a low end, you only pay $1,000 a month in rent. That's another $12,000. Right there, you've almost made up the difference, $19,000. And that's just taxes and housing. There's often benefits. And as a teacher, I had never gotten a bonus before. Like a bonus wasn't something that I got. And the gifts you got were pretty trash. They were like a mug great teachers. We love you. Versus like, I've gotten like a face scrubber, a toaster oven, a massage, like things that have like real value in addition to also getting bonuses. And I'm talking about thousands of dollars of bonuses. So like a lot of companies will pay an end of service bonus. So after working for three years, every month you work, you get a month's worth of salary. That's not happening for you in the United States. And so there yet again is another ad. Most places are going to be increasing your salary every year and you likely have more opportunity at advancement. So 
even if like they didn't do all of that other stuff, you likely can get out of the classroom or at least into a slightly different position that may actually pay you some more just by staying there because there is a high turnover rate. Contracts are typically two years. And so if you think about that, most people in the United States, you're staying at a school for a long period of time. Like if you're only there three years, you're a short time. In an international school, you hit four years and you're like one of the most experienced people at the school outside of the people who that's now their home. So with that, that means every year they're hiring, everything they're cycling. And if they know you and your work ethic and they know what you're about and they know that you're going to stay, you're more likely to actually be competitive and more likely to get that position over them, spending money on somebody who may do what we call a runner. And a runner is basically you come, a break comes, you leave. And at best, you send an email when you touch down back home, like, yeah, I'm not coming back. And that's super common in international schools. So those are some of the different ways. And like I said, taxes often in a lot of countries you're not paying. And even if you are, it's probably not at the rate you are paying taxes in the United States. Then the last one is there's a lot of investment in your education. So like right now, I'm taking an additional special education course. They're paying for me to go speak at a conference next week. They're sponsoring me to go to another symposium at the end of the year. They helped me to become an evaluator for the MSA, like I said. And so I was in Puerto Rico. That school sponsored all of that. So there's also all of these things where like, I mean, I never thought I would be going to Guatemala on a work trip. That's not something I would have thought was a possibility. And it is. And, you know, while I'm also still working on a special education certification, while I'm still doing all of these other things. So there's just like a wealth of ways that aren't just like traditional dollars and cents. And this isn't even accounting for if you're going to somewhere with a low cost of living. So you go somewhere with a low cost of living, you're taking all of those things and then multiplying it as yet another benefit that you get. And even here where the cost of living is actually really, really high, my quality of life is worth the cost. You know what I mean? Like I can hang up from you and be at the beach in three minutes, you know, like that's just an amazing thing. And I'm not just talking about some ragtag beach. I'm talking about the beaches you see filmed in movies and, you know, F-Boy Island filmed here. You know, like when you start thinking about these, like, ooh, I went to some exotic place. Like, that's my home. Like, I live here. You know, when I was like reading your bio and learning more about you in preparation for this chat, I was like, what? Cayman Islands? Huh? I haven't even gone there for a vacation. <laughs> but it's on the list, though. So I love that you just mentioned that I feel like you have to look at your package, like your compensation package, run all the numbers, compare that, right? Not just look at it at face value. And one of the questions that I had was about career advancement. You know, is there opportunities to continue to grow and advance? And you mentioned that when you first moved abroad, you were at a teacher level and now you've been able to grow it in your career to become an assistant principal. So can you talk a little bit more about like the advancement opportunities in your personal experience with that? Yeah, like I said, I definitely was just a teacher. That's what I got hired for. And that's all I really cared about. Before the school year even started, I had been promoted to what was called a coordinator. So basically like a team lead. So that happened within, I mean, I think we had been working at the school a week and a half and they're like, yeah, so you want this position? I was like, sure. Before the end of that school year, I had been promoted 
to the, what the title was at the time was trainer, which is like an instructional coach. And later that position title, I negotiated to get it changed to director of professional development. And so you're talking about in three years, I went from being a teacher to a director. And so then that en- enabled me to, when I was in China, to actually apply to positions that were at director level positions. So I went to China as an academic affairs director. COVID happened, life happened, and I ended up in Kuwait and I was doing curriculum coordinating. And I don't even put that on my resume anymore. That was a horrible experience. I don't encourage anybody to go, but it works for some people. (laughs) And then my current principal reached out to me about the AP position. Now, mind you, while I was in still a trainer at my school in Qatar, I found out about a Cambridge course around leadership certification. I asked them like, hey, I want to do this. Would you all be willing to pay for it? They're like, we won't pay for it, but we'll pay for the whole thing up front. And you only have to pay us back half. And instead of paying back half all in one installment, we can break it up over a few months. Does two or three work for you or do you need more? And I was like, oh, so you're going to pay for it up front. So I never felt the hurt of like paying for it. And then I got this certification that I think is part of how I was able to get both this job as well as my job in China. That really was helpful to have that Cambridge is a university everybody knows. Like, you know, yes, it's in the UK. And it also allowed me to kind of be able to speak to my American experience, but also the UK, which gave me a broader range of experiences. The first school I worked at was a British school. And I'm really glad I did that because it allowed me to see a different way that you do schooling. And now if I apply and somebody is talking about Key stage two, I know what that means. I'm able to speak to it. And people have been reaching out to me about applying to principalships. I just don't want to right now. Like, I'm sure if I wanted to be a principal next year, I could be doing that. But I kind of am really happy with the work that I'm doing. And so I think there's just so many different ways, whether that's advancing within your own school or being marketable to get a lot of experience is to then use that to apply to other schools. And one thing I encourage people to do is, Often, because international schools and particularly private schools that are international, sometimes they just don't have enough people who are willing to do stuff. A lot of people who are international like, yeah, I just came here to go to work and go home and have fun, you know, and that's why they came. I was used to working in the U.S. where I came to work early. I left work late. I took work home. I worked on the weekend. So doing a little bit of extra work to, like, help support the school really was simple for me because I was like, I'm still working less than if I were back home and doing that, just that little bit of extra of taking on a committee, leading some group, working on a specific project of the school, allowed me to beef up my resume, allowed me to become more marketable, but also have a really good set of experiences that I could use within my interviews to showcase that although maybe I have I had the title, I'm ready to do the job because I've done a lot of that work. And so I think all of those things combined just make international like a great way to really move your career forward. And I think that's important to highlight, right? I feel like a misconception that people may have is that you move international and it's done, right? Then there's like a gap in your resume and then U.S. institutions are going to be like, what happened here? But that's not the case and doesn't have to be the case. So I absolutely love that. Now, I'd love to hear before we wrap up today's conversation, are there any tools, resources, associations that people should be aware of 
when it comes to at least knowing that this exists, it's out there. I know my friends years ago went to like a career fair and it was like a huge convention. I remember she was so excited to just kind of meet all of these different institutions, but we'll love to hear like what resources people can tap in to really see if this is an opportunity for them to explore. So the first thing I'd like to remind people is that the hiring cycle for international schools is extremely different than back home. So back home, you're probably looking for jobs about now, March, April time. If you're looking for a job March, April in the international sector, you're actually extremely late. They start hiring for director level and principal level positions as early as the summer, the year before, all the way until starting in like October. Leadership posts are going to be posted August, September, October when leadership posts are done. So most schools, international schools will do a letter of intent, which is pretty common to like what U.S. schools will do. They ask you, what grade do you want to teach or what do you want to do? Do you have an interest? Are you coming back in next year? But those letters are super late in the U.S., like I said, around March time. We get those letters in October, November. The late schools are December. So very early, they're using those to post positions. So I know people who have had jobs since before we got our letters. And like I said, we got our letters in like mid-October. So there are people who are already hired for what they're going to do the next school year before October 15th. So that's a big one is just to have that in your mind. Now, in terms of like tools to help you, I actually have like a list of recruiters and I can share that with you, which are a great place to start. Some of the recruiters cost money. Some are free. Some are a small cost and you can even request to get your money back or, you know, request to get a waiver and things like that. There are tons of different ones and each of them has different focuses. So some are really global and that's great. And they're working with some of your bigger, more competitive schools. But some are like a to the conference I'm speaking at. Conferences and associations are based on like continent geographical areas. So like Coast is like East Asian. And so like the Middle East and Asian countries do that one. ASA is for African schools on the continent of Africa. There's a couple in Europe. There's like a Eastern European and Western European one. And then the one I was talking about, AMISA, is for the Americas. So this side of the world. And there's a few others. I also have a list of things called tech tools. And I list some of the associations that are in there as well. So they're called tech tools abroad. It has a ton, tons of different things for anybody living abroad that's helpful from banking to schools and associations. So there's that listserv that you can look at and get into the different recruiters to start kind of figuring out what's there, what's available. You'll see all different types of schools listed. And then they do have job fairs. But if I'm honest with you, I really think that next year there'll be very few job fairs offered. Most of the recruiters are moving away from them. The ones that we've attended this year and that I know people have attended this year have had really low attendance where before you're talking about 500 to 1,000 people who are going to them. COVID changed that. And now you're talking about conferences where 120 is a high number of candidates. And so schools are going to start pulling out because it's not a good use of their resources to be flying multiple people over. People are not offering contracts nearly as fast at those job fairs like they used to. They used to be you interview by that night, you have a job offer and you have to accept by the next day. That's just not the landscape anymore. Even when I started, that was the landscape. But 
COVID changed that. Like you can do basically everything digitally. Some of the fairs are hosted digitally as well. But I even think the digital fairs are probably going to get wiped away to some degree or very low attendance. But the fairs start in about November and then they normally run till about February or March in terms of if they're still around. And they typically have fairs in the United States. Some cities that typically have fairs are Atlanta, New York, and D.C., depending on the organization, the time. Some used to have one in Seattle for like West Coast people. But like I said, since those fairs aren't getting the same traffic, they're reducing the number of fairs that they're having or eliminating them altogether. Those are probably some of the key ways. The only other one is that using Facebook and using like brothers and sisters of, expats living in, women of, all these different groups in the country are really a great way to actually find about positions that may not ever get posted on a job board or where somebody like you'll have a quick conversation and they'll put your resume forward for you. And brothers and sisters working at international schools is another good one. So getting into some of those Facebook groups is another soft way. It's not a job board of sorts, but it is a way to find out about schools and getting your next job. I love that. I love that. And I also know that you offer one-on-one services. So I would love to share that with everyone who may be interested in working with you. Yeah. So what those services look like are I do resume coaching and interview coaching. I much prefer interview coaching because to me, you can do your resume, a lot of that yourself. Internationally, you don't have to have the best resume, but you do need to be able to interview. And I've interviewed candidates where I sit back and I go, oh, I wish you just knew how to interview better. And so really helping people with that, because that's super important to the international. Some countries have to pay for your visa and your visa can be quite expensive. And so your salary package, although you may not think it's a lot, by the time you add in your medical benefits and your visa and your housing, you could be worth over $150,000 of an investment annually. And so they want to know that they're going to hire somebody who's likely to stay. So I do those two, but I also have something called a deep dive where that's really allows the person who's meeting with me to curate what they want their experience to be. They heard me speak at something and they read about it and they're like, I have very specific questions that I want to go through and I want you to talk through and I just want your brain and your time. And then we just do a deep dive together. And so we spend 30 minutes covering whatever they want to cover and that I've covered everything from I've reviewed people's contracts that they've been given because you can learn a lot about a school based off of their contract. Like I can tell you if you're working at a high quality school or a lower tier school, just by what the contract looks like. I've talked to people about what their options are based off of what their qualifications are. I've talked to people about very specific things in the resume. They're like, I don't want to go through my whole resume and redo it. I want to talk about A, B, and C. There's probably tons of other things. Like people have just, one girl talked to me about, oh, I've gotten a job. I was like, oh. I've never really had anybody book me who already has a job abroad. She's like, yeah, but I want to be able to connect with people before I get there. And here's what I do. And so we just sat and talked about like ways she could start forming connections and get some experience and feel prepared. I also do coaching because I have moved out of the classroom into administration. So like some people who are kind of in their first like at bat of curriculum coordinating, instructional coaching, assistant principal They'll book me and we'll talk about like what they can do or people have come to me like, this is a problem I'm dealing with at school. How would you handle it? I'm like, oh, okay. Here are a couple of options. And of course, you know, 
I always tell people grain of salt because I'm not in your situation. I'm not there every day, but I'll strategize with you around how we can solve that. So those are the big three that people normally do. And then I do some other consulting that's kind of by appointment, I guess, or, you know, as needed. I love that. So Financial Savvy Travelers, we talked a lot about teaching abroad. And I really wanted this conversation to be an eye-opener for some of you who I know may not be satisfied in your current positions and you're thinking about this life of travel. So I specifically invited Adrian on to speak to you. So make sure you head over to thoughtcard.com to check out the show notes for all of the resources and links mentioned and definitely take Adrian up on her offer to dive deeper and to answer any additional questions or get additional coaching if this sounds like something that you want to partake in. So that is all that I have for you for today. Adrian, how can we connect with you? Are you on social? Do you have a website? Let us know and then we'll be able to sign off. I have a website, worldwideeducator.org. So you can visit me there. I also am on Instagram, Worldwide Educator. I have Twitter and I have other things. Those aren't, I'm not the greatest with. And then LinkedIn is another way a lot of people connect with me. Adrian Waller, Adrian M. Waller. Excellent. All right, Financial Savvy Travelers, that's all for today. And we'll see you next time. Bye-bye.